Over that 12 years that I was in the agency, I probably worked with hundreds of businesses. You see lots of different business models, lots of different growth models, lots of ways that things can go wrong and right. And eventually you learn so much from other people's experience that you can go, okay, well, here's a bit of a formula. So, you know, I've got a, yeah, I've, I've actually got a formula, a bit of a checklist of all the stuff that I'll, I'll look at in a business and do and gradually try to build for that business over a period of time. There's only so many ways to grow a business, really. Welcome to Yaro's Podcast, where you'll discover the stories behind world-class performers, business builders, and enlightened leaders. Today's episode is brought to you by InboxDone.com, who provide a human being to take over your email inboxes. That's right, someone else can handle your email for you. This company was started after I went to a networking dinner with some other entrepreneurs and I explained to them that I only check my email once per month. They looked at me quite shocked, so I had to explain that I actually have someone else handling about 95% of my messages. That's why I only need to go into my inbox once a month. That is the origin story of the InboxDone.com company. We've since gone on to launch this business to help other entrepreneurs and successful people like you who spend way too much time on their email when they should be doing other productive tasks for their business or fun things in their life. If this resonates with you, if you're getting too much email, you're spending too much time in your inbox and you know having someone dedicated to handling your email, your customer service and doing proactive things like chasing up clients over email, then Inbox Done is for you. Check it out at www.inboxdone.com. Hi, this is Yara and welcome to today's show. So a bit of background for this interview. I was recently in touch with a very old friend of mine named Will Swain, who is actually the person on today's interview, because Will became a client for my InboxDone.com business. So we took over managing four of his different email accounts. And the reason why he has four is, is he actually runs four different businesses right now, which you're going to hear about in this interview with Will. Will also happens to be the person I first interviewed on my podcast as my very ever first interview. I did have some episodes prior to that, which were solo episodes, but Will, way back in 2005, was my first ever guest. So it's kind of nice to bring back Will on the show and uh, find out what's happened with his business in the last 13 years since that first interview. And I want to state that this podcast in particular will be of value to you if you are currently or you're planning on running an agency style business, as that has been by far the longest term business Will has run. And since we pick up the conversation as a kind of a part two of the first interview I did with Will, which is when his agency was just getting started, you're going to hear the story of the full evolution from the point of it growing into a $2 million a year business with a large team and a a really nice office with many people in there working and you know all kinds of different departments in his company. And Will's going to explain how all that was developed and how he grew his business. But then to the more recent years, we actually scaled that business back while it grew and expanded into other businesses. And I think it's really interesting how we use the agency as a tool to find key partners to get involved with a second and a third and even a fourth business. So if you're interested in, in an agency model, and you want to see how Will has basically gone through the whole development curve right down to where it is today, plus how he recommends you use an agency to potentially invest in other businesses and start other companies 
you will absolutely love this podcast. So I'm going to let you listen to that now. Enjoy the show. Hi, this is Yarrow and welcome to the show. Today I have a very exciting guest to speak to. It's actually a part two episode that's a real bookend, I hope, to an amazing entrepreneurial career. And in fact, my guest today is actually the very first person I ever interviewed on my podcast. So prior to that, I did do a few solo episodes, very short, 10 minutes or so. And then I discovered that interviewing people turned out to be a way more exciting format of podcasting. And I guess I have to give a little bit of credit to my first ever podcast guest, who I'm welcoming back 13, no, 14 years, actually, 2019, we're recording this. Uh, so almost 14 years later. Hello, Will Swain. Hey, Yara. It's good to be back, mate. So Will's in Brisbane or from Australia, back where I used to live. Hence, you're going to hear his Aussie accent. Will, you know, when we first did this interview, you had already a successful online marketing business. And obviously, it was a bit smaller than I believe it's become. So I think it'd be fantastic to really take a look at a long-term growth case study of your main business and also look at how that's ballooned into all kinds of you know other entrepreneurial projects Will, having this skill set in marketing, it's, I think, been something that's really been transferable for new startups. So I'm really excited on a personal level because I don't even really know what Will's been up to over the last 14 years besides getting married, making babies. He's got chickens in his backyard right now, which I don't know about, and multiple businesses, property investing, there's all kinds of things going on. So Will, where do you want to start? How about where you live now? What's your home life like at the moment? Well, we're still living in the place that we've been, uh, we purchased sort of seven or eight years ago in a suburb of Brisbane called Newmarket, uh, which you'll know, but probably most listeners won't. But a couple of years ago, we bought 13 acres out at Brookfield, which is a acreage area about 15 k's out of Brisbane. So we've been working on that property and fixing it up and putting animals on it and things like that. And um, the plan is to build out there and then we'll move out there in the next year or so. Wow. So we do have a few. We've got a few backyard chickens here, but out of Brookfield, we've got you know, alpacas and goats, and um, soon to be a few other species as well. Hopefully. Okay, so you're totally getting into farming. The online entrepreneur goes analog, huh? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> now, for those who don't know, which is probably everyone, because I doubt they've listened to the first episode of this podcast, what exactly is the business you founded? Well, tell me when you founded it now, because you already had three or four years into it when we did that recording back in 2005, right? Yeah, I think it was 2003 when I started what was originally called Will International. And I just called it that because I didn't have any better ideas. And within about six months, I kind of rebranded it to marketing results. And this was when I suppose there were, I don't know if there were really digital agencies then. There were sort of website design agencies or, you know, web development shops, which were almost like more of an IT type service. But I, uh, anyway, started marketing results. And initially it was more of like a direct marketing consultancy because that was my background uh, out of Japan. And the idea was to, you know, help, I suppose, small businesses market their services using direct marketing strategies. Before too long, I sort of came across people like Perry Marshall and their AdWords stuff and tested out some of this AdWords stuff myself and found that it was really, really, really cheap and really effective because not many other people were doing it and there was no competition. So, uh, yeah, it sort of became like a over a series of years, two, two or three years, sort of became more and more digital until probably by about, you know, 
2005, 2006, it was probably, you know, 100% digital uh, at that point. So that was sort of the, the backstory mm. there. You were predominantly setting up Google AdWords campaigns for small businesses, is that right? Yeah, we were doing AdWords. We were doing, I think, simple websites. I don't think the concept of landing pages, as it were, like standalone landing pages or funnels and everything was sort of well, it was years away. Mm. So, yeah, setting up simple websites for businesses and, and using AdWords coupled with, you know, direct response copy. And it was pretty slow going. That was a pretty, it was a number of years, I suppose, to build up the, just build up the client base and build up the various functions in the business. And I think in 2005, I would have been pretty, pretty damn early in that whole process. But essentially, yeah, we just helped clients to get, you know, make the phone ring and got some decent results and put up some case studies and did our own marketing. And then more people called and said, I want to get results like those case studies. And Gradually, one thing led to another. All right. So why don't you take us forward then? Uh, let's just go from where we were, 2005, 2006. Because I know, like, I remember checking in on you and, you know, it was you and your friend Ed for a while. And then Chris Koo, I think I remember too. Uh, yeah. It's a couple of your early employees. And then uh, years later, suddenly you're in this huge office with, you know, you've got a, a large team. You've got managers, like account managers are looking after things. So Maybe take us through those, you know, small startup phase versus I think you're well and truly past the startup phase now to a, an actual growing small business. And, and maybe just for the sake of um, timestamping this too, what does your company look like right now? How many employees do you have? Uh, whatever other information, you know, you're willing to share. I don't know if you want to share revenue, but everyone loves hearing, you know, turnover and things like that. And well, the, well, this is quite a story because at the moment we are smaller than we've not ever been. I think we used to have one person, but at the moment there's, I'm not really active in the marketing results business, mm -hmm. but I have a very capable guy by the name of Ben Sweetlove, who's the sort of principal consultant and he, so he runs, he runs that business now essentially. And uh, we have, so this he's, he's in the office, we have uh, another fellow in the office, Scott, and the rest of the team are sort of remote team members. So there's, you know, probably quite a number, quite a number of those in different capacities. But essentially, in in house, there's sort of you know three of us day to day, and I'm not really active in that business. Okay, so you've gone full circle. Yeah. You went from a busy, you know, on the floor bunch of marketers to a virtual team. Yeah, and I can sort of trace that, yeah. that trajectory. Tell us for what you. happened, and tell and what yeah. your, must be some lessons there if you go big than small than you know remote. Yeah. So some of these, I don't really have a great memory for kind of you know, things that happened 10 years ago and stuff. But basically, <laughs> yeah. um, basically, I think back in 2005, I think we were we had a, a, an office in the city. We had a, a two or three team members and we were trying to you know, increase revenue and so forth. It was a reasonable struggle, I suppose, to manage the cash flow of the business while making trying to make a bit of a salary and trying to work things out as we, as we went. And it was probably, yeah, 2005 was certainly pre- pre-retainer days. So this was all, you know, building websites for three or $4,000 from memory, you know, maybe doing some copywriting projects for $500 or things like that. So, you know, that's they're relatively small drops of revenue. And I think probably a, a year or two later, um, I decided to move out of the office in the city. It was costing, you know, again, not megabucks, but it was costing probably 20 grand a year to have that office in the city. And we didn't really have clients visiting us. You know, the revenues, I'm not sure what the revenue, the revenue might have been 150 grand or something like that. So it was a relatively big chunk of rev. So actually moved back to 
home office based out of the you know flat or flats where I was living in at the time. And you know, team members just sort of came to the, the came to the flat, and we all worked from there, and that works pretty well, I think. So we, for a couple of years, we had three, four team members, and then I think in about two thousand and call it, you know, seven, I sort of realised that this project-based work product was very stressful from a business cash flow point of view, and it probably wasn't that great for the client because you know, client comes to you. You build them a website and then you go, okay, you got your website now, but you know, now what? You know, they need new content, they need traffic, they need optimization, they need other things like that. So basically, we had a bit of a client base and I basically sort of had some conversations with those clients and said, look, instead of, you know, us building your website and then us just waiting until you need some updates to your About Us page and we charge you $100 for it, we want to do ongoing marketing for your company. And this is what we're going to do. We're going to manage AdWords. We're going to do some SEO. We're going to do some content. We're going to do some landing pages and some A-B split testing, things like that. And we're going to charge you 2000 bucks a month. And this was a sort of, I mean, I'm sure that the model existed somewhere, but it wasn't certainly an accepted or a common model. Now it's common as, you know, it's common as muck. But yeah, we had sort of four or five clients said, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll get on that. And then automatically we had our sort of 10 grand a month in recurring income. And that kind of changed the game a fair bit because then you, you know, you're paying the bills on day one and anything additional will start pick up the results from there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that put a bit of a flaw under the business and we did that for a couple more years until I think, yeah, I, I bought my first house in, in Brisbane and we then moved the office into that bottom floor of that house. Um, was there for a couple of years and then sort of started, the team started to get bigger at that point to sort of probably, a, you know, I probably would have had about seven people working from the house at one point. And then, wow. so we thought, okay, time to get an office. So we jumped into an office in just nearby and kind of recommenced that office path. And we started to grow more there by adding account managers and different types of infrastructure. We had all our tech and all our delivery in-house. So we didn't have mega numbers, but we probably had about, you know, four to five account managers. I was also on the, on the tools or the chief salesperson, but also on the tools a bit myself and, you know, the, the chief troubleshooter for want of a better word. And that was probably at the point where the income, you know, take-home income started to substantially pick up. So there was more of a flywheel, you know, there's more of a mm. flywheel moving at that point with recurring clients, with different functions reasonably well taken care of, and most of those setup and startup and development costs kind of covered. So that, you know, that sort of became more more stable. Do you? But you know, yeah. Do you remember so your staff numbers during the like the very peak when you had the biggest office? Maybe that was when I visited you. I, I can't remember. Yeah, so we had we had another office. Um, we did we had that that office I mentioned for three years. Then we had another one in in a sort of Riverside suburb, Milton, and that was we probably had a few more people at that point. But the probably the biggest, the peak, the best year for sort of revenue was and probably profit was two thousand and sixteen tax year, and well, we probably had a dozen dozen or so members, maybe a few kind of uh, additional hangers on mm-hmm. in terms of you know part time support people and that. And yeah, revenue-wise, we were sort of above two, uh, above two mil, and profit-wise, was a pretty, yeah, probably twenty-five percent plus profit. So that was sort of yeah, a bit higher than what we'd had in, in previous years. Would you um, mind explaining? Because obviously, there's a big gap between ten thousand a month to two million a year in revenue, mm-hmm. and it's a big gap in years there too. Eleven years between those amounts. What fueled? The growth. What brought in more clients? Was there a change in product pricing strategy? What what happened? 
I think it's a combo of things. Like in agency world, you know, if you've got a computer and an internet connection and some knowledge, you can be a digital agency, right? So your barriers to entry are really, really small. In order to scale the agency, I guess you need you need clients and you need delivery capacity. Clients was never really the problem for us. Um, we went through many number of years where probably 80% of that time, we didn't have the capacity in the team. We had clients waiting to come on board or we had capacity to, to generate clients, but we didn't have the capacity to deliver. Why is that? Because probably it's partly due to the different models that we kind of tested over the years. Like when we, back in the early days, it was sort of, you know, I was a bit of a jack of all trades doing everything. And then we kind of hired the next person and, you know, they had a stable of clients and they did everything for their clients. And then the next person did the same. So it was a craft shop model whereby, you know, it's like a, an old style cobbler's cobbler business where each cobbler is making. It's like a hairdresser's almost today. Well, yeah, well, in the cobbler analogy, I suppose, you know, you've got the cobbler making the, you know, the upper, the sole, and the shoelaces. And then you've got another one who makes the upper, the sole, and the uh-huh. shoelaces, and so forth. And then we, we eventually started to move it more towards specialization where someone's making uppers all day, someone's making soles all day, and then you're sticking them together. Gotcha. So, nevertheless, that was a, a very gradual transition because there's a lot of moving parts in our in the sort of work we were delivering, right? So, because we're sort of marketing automation, landing pages, traffic, things like this. Right, so you'd have one person doing landing pages, one person doing ad campaign, one person doing copy. That's how you, you cobbled it together, right? Yeah, and the account manager was sort of the coordinator in the middle who actually had a pretty broad skill set, but certain things we carved off and had specialists uh, if we had enough business in that particular category. Not the way that we do it today, obviously, but mm. that, that was, and, and that was probably, you know, I stuck too long around that non-specialized delivery model, which is more of a generic delivery model. And that sort of means it's quite hard to hire those account managers hard and slow to train them. Mm. And, you know, after a couple of years, they might sort of get bored or sort of go, yep, I know this job now. I've got, you know, I've got the clients, I've got these skill sets now. I'm looking for something else. So people, you know, stick around for two or three years if you're lucky mm-hmm. and then go off to the next thing. And then, you know, some people, they don't have the ability, desire, or whatever you want to call it, to acquire those skills. So, you know, you have some mishires as well. Mm-hmm. It was a real challenge to keep that pipeline of capacity at the right level to match the pipeline of new business coming in. So I can see why there's that capacity issue. I'm sure, though, everyone listening is also very interested in how did you find yourself in a situation where you had more clients than you can handle? That's not common. It's very desirable, yeah. usually. So yeah. what, what was the source of leads? What, and I know you said you could generate on demand, but why? What Magic wand? It was all inbound. Like We've never really done any outbound marketing, and I always prefer the inbound channel. What do you mean by that for us novices? Difference between outbound and inbound? Yeah, so... I mean, we had an email, you know, an, an e-zine, as it was called, in, you know, 2003. So it was a, this is when you could get away with putting something on your website that said, you know, put your email address in here for free marketing tips <laughs> and that sort of thing. So we had an e-zine, we had you know, autoresponder emails and then broadcast emails. So we started to build that email list really early. Over time, kind of enhanced the content going out to the list uh, and upgraded it and sort of tried to put out some thought leadership around lead generation frameworks and things like that. So we had traffic. We were eating our own dog food, you know, basically. We were doing AdWords, we were doing SEO, getting people on our email list, sending broadcasts and call to action type emails, and then getting people to respond and, you know, have a have a consult mm. 
discussion. Practicing and, and what you preach. Exactly. Which was quite interesting because ironically, some of the agencies, I say some of the pay-per-click agencies that have grown the fastest and the biggest in Australia, their client acquisition is 95% outbound telemarketing. <laughs> Ironic. <laughs> yeah, so they're doing that and then saying, oh, you know, we'll, we'll manage your AdWords. And, you know, they're knocking it, but that was sort of, that certainly does work, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So uh, what happened next then? You, you, you found yourself with more demand than capacity and that model of the cobbler system wasn't working too well because people were not really sticking around or they weren't the right fit or so on. So how did you solve that problem? Yeah, we did. Well, I don't know if we ever did, really. There was an ongoing, always an ongoing challenge. But you, and I don't want to make this too much of a sort of chronological walk down memory lane because people might find it hard, hard to identify with some of those those pain points. But I'm sure the agency owners will be listening very closely. Yeah, trust me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, 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 that's right. So a couple of things that we did to, I guess, achieve some inflection points in the business. One was uh, we hired a sales process engineering consultants by the name of Ballistics. Justin Rothmarsh is the a principal of that firm, and they're still doing wonderful things. I think they're US-based now. Uh, and they proposed a methodology of sales whereby there was a division of labor in, in the sales process. So basically, a lead would come in, our sales coordinator, which is basically like an executive assistant type role, would book an appointment in with me to have a sales consultation. I would do that chat, uh, and I'd put together a proposal, and then I'd go back and present that to the client. And then they'd sort of say yay or nay, and then I would sort of write a brief of, you know, a brief of the work onto the account manager, and we could hand it over to the account manager. So that probably bumped revenue by thirty percent in, you know, two months. Wow! Because the efficiencies, there were much more efficiencies in the sales process. Well, so I wasn't sort of faffing around trying to call people back and book appointments and you know things with them. That was very effective. And another thing that was very effective. I'm trying to think of the timing of this. It would have been, say, 2011 or 12, maybe, whereby we had a couple of bigger, maybe a bit later, but we had a couple of bigger clients whereby, you know, we were, we were initially they come to us and they, and they say, you know, can we, can we have some, some SEO or some AdWords management? And then we go, yeah, sure. So we started doing AdWords, but it wasn't very strategic or, you know, overall global sort of thinking. So we thought, oh, we could probably go to some of these clients and say, hey, how about we spend a day together on strategy and we'll work with you and we'll uh, work out all the leverage points in your business to implement and we'll charge you, you know, that'll be three grand for that that process. And initially that was like a real big thing to be, you know, proposing a 3K fee for quote unquote, you know, a day of consulting. It's quite, quite cheap. Because, well, yeah, it seems cheap today, doesn't mm. it? But initially, because because the, the model we'd come from was all about doing work for, for work product, uh, you know, money for work product. Mm-hmm. So, but we had a few clients that could sort of see the, the benefits and they, they went ahead with this uh, service. And uh, look, initially it was not very efficient to deliver because there was usually a lot, a lot of write-up and other stuff uh, out of it. But what we found was that we could look a lot deeper into the client situation. We could come up with better recommendations and we could sort of quantify the value of those recommendations a lot more precisely, which meant that we could come up with a, a scope of works and you know more things that we could do for the client. And the client was very receptive to those, where they'd go, "Yeah, this is this is a, this all looks awesome. Let's do that." So that allowed us to basically do more for each client, add more value for each client, charge more for each client, and it took a couple of probably two or three years. Again, quite slow when you look back on it, but eventually we sort of made this the 
single dominant model, uh, sales model in, in the agency. So client comes in, has a conversation, and we assess what they want to do, assess if there's a fit, and then we kind of say, oh, I would say, okay, the way we work from here is to first of all go through a strategy process to really map out exactly what the leverage points are, you know, map out deliverables A, B, and C. And as a result of that, we can then develop a, uh, like an implementation plan. And then, you know, the rough price points of those implementation plans will be between you know, 10 and 30 grand. And then we can go and execute. Yeah. So basically, we wouldn't take on board any clients until they had engaged the strategy service and paid the 3K. Right. So it's kind of like a, a qualification tool as well to get a highly qualified client because they're already spending three grand. They're much more likely to then jump on board for a 10 or 20 grand implementation product. That's right. And, and also, like if you did have people who wanted free analysis, free proposals, or they had a, some tactical requirement that they wanted us to just jump into, and we developed good ways of basically saying no to all those requests. But the thing is, once you go deep and you analyze, yeah, if, if, if a client, you know, a client might think that they're getting value by asking for a free proposal, but a free proposal is going to be, you know, it'll take an hour to put together and it's not going to have a really tight handle on this situation. Mm-hmm. It's probably not going to re- recommend the absolute best course of action and it's going to cost them, you know, money to implement all that. And maybe halfway through, you kind of realize, oh, gee, if I'd, if I'd thought about it, if I'd had more time to think about it. I would have proposed something different, but I suppose we're, we're moving now, so let's see how we go with this. But with the strategy process, you go deep and you've got a much better way to set the direction mm, and, and, and get results. So, so yeah, that was good. And, and that again, that process of charging for the strategy, A, brought in some more, in, um, uh, some more revenue, but also you know, nine out of 10 clients who went through that strategy process engaged us for implementation. So we no longer had a situation where we were pumping out heaps of proposals and then one in, you know, one in five go, oh, okay, yeah, I'll go ahead. Um, so it was a really interesting shift to the right. business model. So it's like more conversions, but far less applications. So it's kind of like the way to look at it. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So that, did that take you all the way up to the, you know, the big year in, in 2016? Yeah, essentially where yeah, we had a few good sort of build up years there around that time I was, starting to look at diversifying my income or portfolio, if you like, from a business point of view. So I've been doing the agency stuff for like, you know, how many years, 12, 13, 14 years at this stage. Were you boring? <laughs> I was looking for new challenges, I think. I was looking for new challenges and also in order, someone once made the point that agencies are great, right? You can start with a, a computer and an internet connection, but ultimately you have to be adding a lot more business value than you're charging for. Because if you weren't, then no one would engage you. So there were opportunities in business, I felt, to have an equity position in a business and to actually capture that, that full income and, uh, and equity of that, uh, out of that business. Does that make sense? I think to put that in layman speak, you mean you could take your skills, apply them to another company that you had some kind of ownership in, maybe in a partnership, co-founding or something like that, and therefore yep. you, you get a ownership equity gain rather than just you know running an agency taking a salary and, and so on and, and why not do both right you once you build systems yeah. in the agency you can step away yeah. a bit and uh play around with some ideas now i i remember because you always had people in real estate interested in doing things with you i remember <laughs> down in west end there was that uh what was that it was like a retailer of rugs was it rugs 
you did a whole bunch of AdWords for that guy and you sort of became a specialist. And like the, what I'm basically summarizing here is, Will, I remember you through the nature of the agency and especially when you were hands-on with a lot of the AdWords campaigns, finding yourself a specialist at selling other people's stuff as well. So is that kind of what maybe eventually led you to do your own spin-off business? Yeah, so just to get to some specifics, I I suppose I was open to these new opportunities. And the other thing, I suppose, with having your own business versus or having a direct business rather than helping other people market their businesses is that you get to be the captain of the ship and you get to decide what you're going to do, whereas sometimes you might pitch a a client on, say, oh, we should do SEO now. But the client goes, eh, nah, I'm pretty happy with AdWords. But, you know, SEO might generally be the best vehicle for to, to grow that business. So if it's your own business, you make those decisions and you live or die by the consequences. Right. So I think chronologically, it was sort of about three businesses that I spun off in, in relatively short order, but one of them was a, a shed manufacturing business. Awesome. So, um, <laughs> so some an obvious choice, an obvious choice. So, a contact of mine introduced me to some mutual friends of his who had been developing shed, uh, sort of steel shed designs, and building steel sheds for about twenty years. And they, I guess, steel sheds are kind of everywhere in the world. But you know, th- there's this quintessential Aussie shed, right? Corrugated iron kind of shed that you see all over the place, and They've been developing this and they were looking for ways to grow that business and they initially looked into franchising. So having, you know, showrooms dotted around different country towns and cities and, you know, growing that way. But that's kind of last, that's the real last century model. And anyway, they, they my friend was sort of put us all together into a, into a essentially a strategy situation where they explored this digital model. And we looked at the digital model and worked out how we could sort of revolutionize the shared business by ripping out a lot of cost and making it much more responsive and making, expanding the geographical reach to a national presence and all of that stuff. And at the conclusion of that conversation, we, we sort of said, well, there's sort of a couple of ways we could do this. We could act for you as an agency or we could go partners on this. And eventually, we pretty soon, we decided to go down the partnership route and, and launch that business. And that business is called Designer Sheds. And that's gone really well. Uh, it's been going for about three years now. But essentially, we've got a, a very digitally enhanced sales and delivery model, whereby we generate leads from all over the country. People will get on a call with one of our salespeople to have a, a screen sharing session, basically explain what they want in their shed, and the, the salesperson will design the shed in front of them. And then after they get the design, they say, look, is this okay, let me price this up. This will be $15,000 delivered. You know, would you like it? And then they go, yes. So we will then build, um, you know, fashion all the components throughout through, through the blue scope, which is a big, big steel, big steel mill with lots and lots of different branches in Australia and, um, and send, them, send the shed to them in, in kit form. Um, so it's a pretty big kit, but it's a kit form. And then they'll build it on site through their own build or whatever. Mm. What's the lead source for that? You said you're getting them all digitally. Is it is it your bread and butter ads and landing pages and, and email campaigns? Yeah, exactly. All of the above: ads, organic, bit of Facebook, bit of when I say Facebook, most mostly um, paid, and yeah, email autoresponders and different types of campaigns there. So that business, yeah, the first year or so at least took a while to build that infrastructure and automation because. One of the things that makes sheds, especially custom sheds, hard to build is that they're 
surprisingly fiddly. Hmm. You know, you look at them and think, oh, what, well, it's just a steel box. But when you look, when you go down to customization, they're super fiddly. There's lots of ways you can miss out components or make stuff up in different ways. So, uh, and that was the technology that my business partners have, which is all about the, the shed, the custom design and pricing and provisioning. And, and I'm the guy that gets the phone to ring. So, yeah, the first year we're sort of working out our different systems for kind of error proofing and troubleshooting. And then we've added marketing pillars, added salespeople, and then now they're, you know, a, a typical shed salesperson working out of a, a showroom. Depends on the day, but they might only speak to, you know, one or two customers a day. With our model where we're drawing from the, the whole country, our shed salesmen and our, you know, they're doing 15 or 20 customer consultations every week. Mm. So, it's a very, very popular crow in your background. <laughs> I haven't heard an Australian crow in a while. Yeah. <laughs> So, um, so yeah, they're, they're, so, 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 so it's a way to get more capacity out of the model. There's some challenges as well, of course, being the remote sort of model. But yeah, so that's gone that's gone well, and I've got high hopes for that for that business over the next few years as we as we continue to scale that. I think the model's dialed in, and it's now put foot on the accelerator. There aren't the capacity issues that you, that I've faced with other with the agency, for example. Right. So that's exciting. And you said there so were two, yeah. two others. That was business number one. Yeah, business number two was property investment business advisory. So we. Um, so I've always been quite interested in property investment and I, yeah, around about 2015 sort of started looking to buy a business premises through what you call a self-managed super fund for the Australian listeners. That's like, I think it's like a retirement account, like a 401k account, something like that. But anyway, you, you can buy a business premises in your own super fund and then you can rent it to your, your business. And this is very it has lots of advantages. It's tax effective, and it's um, you know you're paying rent to yourself rather than paying it to the landlord, all that stuff. So uh, sort of fished around for a couple of different premises, and it, it's hard to yeah. There were a few you know disappointments of deals tipping over or whatever, but eventually uh, myself and my wife purchased a building in in Bowen Hills, which is a pretty very central suburb in Brisbane, and uh, we put the yeah put the business in there. It was pretty. It was sort of a, an, industri- an industrial premises, so it was quite basic in terms of internal fit out, but good land content, etc. And put that, um, put the team in there. And the cl- advisor I was sort of working with on that front was someone I'd worked with before for a number of years. And I think one thing led to another. There, we decided to do the same sort of model with with property. So again, I would do business generation, lead generation. He would handle the advisory side, and that has been. I think uh, also a similar sort of path, you know, first year working out the model and sort of trying to build up the systems and processes and that sort of thing. And then it's been, again, probably about three years in now with that. And that's been relatively uh, successful. Uh, the property market sort of had a bit of a boom and now it's on a down, uh, a bit of a downturn in Australia, depending on where you are. So that's probably slightly harder conditions than it was. But that's been, yeah, it's been an interesting pathway as well. So, yeah, that was sort of play number two. Um, and <laughs> then play sounding like three. a very similar story with each of these side businesses. Yeah, yeah, there's a certain, and I think this is a interesting lesson for people that have been involved in marketing or, or agencies for a long time. You know, over that 12 years that I was in, in the coalface in the agency, I probably worked with, I don't know how many hundreds of businesses. You see lots of different business models, lots of different growth models, uh, lots of ways that things can go wrong and right. And eventually you, get a bit of, you know, you sort of learn so much from other people's experience that you can go, okay, well, here's a bit of a formula. You know, I've got a, yeah, I've, ex- I've actually got a formula. It's on a, 
you know, a piece of A3 paper with a bit of a checklist of all the stuff that I'll, I'll look at in a business and do and gradually try to build for that business over a period of time. And, um, you know, there's only so many ways to grow a business, really. Mm-hmm. What was so, the, the third uh, one? So the third one was probably the one where I'm most involved at the moment and has been most challenging. And this is a CRM. Essentially, it's a CRM and automation software product for mortgage brokers called Broker Engine. So another long-term client who's a mortgage broker came to me a few years ago for strategy around this software that he developed as an in-house tool. And he was getting some interest from other brokers who were saying, you know, what do you use for your internal processes? And he explained it and they would say, okay, can I use that too? I'll pay you money for it. So he came for a bit of a strategy session with myself and took a while to incubate probably between that and when we sort of started going forward, it might have been, you know, six or nine months, can't remember exactly. But essentially, we decided to, to partner on that and I would tip in some funds as he did and we would develop that product into a more of a commercial product. So, yeah, that's been pretty interesting. First thing being that, you know, I talked about price of entry, you know, to be an agency, computer and an internet connection is fine. To have a software product, you need to build a lot of software, a lot of features. And when it's 90 Yes, you can build it feature by feature, but you know when it's 99% complete toward a, a minimum viable product, it doesn't have any value. Mm. It's the last 1% that then allows you to have some value and to bring on board customers. So the development costs are very substantial, and it, we've got a SaaS model where we're selling the software on a licensed basis for you know $150 a month or $100 a month, depending on the user type, right? So you need a lot of users to, to recoup that initial investment. And it's, yeah, this, it's been like a real, that, that's been a real growth journey in terms of just the, intri- yeah, it, it's not as simple to just, you know, it's not like the, in the shared business, it's like, okay, we've got sheds. Okay, customers, do you want a shed? Right, we design it. Okay, <laughs> supply a shed. Okay, bye. With the software, <laughs> there's so many layers of complexity there. There's user onboarding, there's retention, there's all sorts of things like that. So, and also from a product perspective, you know, I've, you know, everyone's had to get their hands dirty around helping the product succeed and, you know, design up UX, UI screens or, or provide feedback on that sort of on the product itself. And then we've had to get a lot more rigorous about planning our strategic priorities that we use. And we use Vern Harnish's one page strategic plan to do that. So we've yeah, had to get a lot more rigorous around our sort of weekly, monthly, quarterly meetings and things and priorities and make sure that we're on track there. And software being software, it always costs a lot more than you expect and takes a lot longer. Yep. So we've had all of those challenges, but we've just launched our new version, which is, and this is yeah, a little sidebar here, that the, the initial version was built on the back of Microsoft Dynamics, which is a CRM system with its own sort of licensing model. So we were building a layer on the top of that for lots of probably in retrospect not very good reasons. But essentially we kind of ended up with a product that was really more Microsoft Dynamics than it was our own product. So we had to uh, redevelop the whole product uh, in our own technology, which is built on Django, Python, React. And that, again, very expensive and time-consuming and, you know, again, costing a lot more than we expected. So we've just now launched that. Uh, we're on the market with that product now and starting to get more users on and hopefully achieve some you know, solid growth this year. 
to you know, start making some money somewhere. Mm. Yeah, interesting. Uh, the advice, sell sheds, not software, could be <laughs> the takeaway from, from that comparison. Although, obviously, you know, it's, it's whatever uh, your business model and the skill set of your team can, can do. If you didn't have the partners to make sheds, you'd probably be pretty uh, useless to starting that business too, right, Will? So, interesting. Yeah, yes. Yeah, I think it was Jay Abraham who, and this is a bit, a bit like agency owners, like, you know, so Jay Abraham talked about doing his conference. He used, he used to do marketing conferences and get a thousand people in the room and blah, blah, blah. But I think part of the reason why he used to do those conferences was to identify the three or four or five businesses that had a really good, really poised to grow. And that those are the businesses that he would partner with on some profit share basis. So the point of the conferences from his perspective was largely to identify the four or five. And right. in an agency perspective, I think agencies have this this opportunity as well. You know, if you've got 50 or 100 clients and there's a bit of churn every so often, so over the course of a year, you might be talking like, you know, really looking in depth into the, the wheels of growth in 100 plus businesses does give you an opportunity to sort of cherry pick or at least propose some partnerships if that's viable. Right. Yeah, that's fantastic. And, and uh, hopefully the agency owners listening in will be thinking, huh, I, yeah, I didn't really like to do this. And I now will showing some interesting examples. But I am curious, you know, obviously to dive into one side business, a second side business, and now uh, obviously a, a third one that does seem to sound like it's taking a bit of time to get going. What happened to the agency? Because you must have had to separate yourself. And you did mention at the start of this interview, you have scaled back to a completely virtual team, basically. And you've got sort of a CEO type person who's running that company. So can yeah. you just explain how that all eventuates and, and maybe even how that impacts your life? Like what's a day in the life of, of Will in terms of running or being involved with four different businesses? Yeah, it's a good one. I think everything sort of happened over, yeah, the last sort of three years have been very different from the previous 12. The previous 12 was sort of, you know, climbing the same mountain at a slow pace. And the last three have been a sort of, I don't know what the right analogy is, you know, probably... Picking the fruits and growing more trees by the sounds of things. Well, it's sort of like it's converted into a roller coaster, I suppose. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. So in the process of starting these businesses, they required you know, capital. So the sheds and property, not too much, but uh, software, uh, a lot more. And at the same time, we kind of had, yeah, let's say we had a dozen people in the agency. We had a couple of account managers who basically resigned around the same time. I think we might have had, say, six account managers, right? And um, we were putting out feelers to get more, you know, hire more account managers. Had some, you know, tried a couple of people, had some mishires and stuff like that, which are time-consuming and costly. And what I was finding is that I, whilst the financial results were going well, etc., so much of my time was taken up with HR management, looking at accounts, you know, planning, all that stuff, and not that much time, you know, comparatively little time around growth and doing marketing, helping people grow, you know, which is what I like to do. So it really became a – and we had like, you know, a layer of management and everything like that, and that's that's great, but the management starts to – you know, it's, it does soak up a lot of potential profit because you – you know, you know how it is, right? You've got middle mm. managers and not necessarily dollar productive, but they're, they're soaking up their profit. So although we had more scale, it wasn't necessarily much more profitable than, than it was at a much smaller size. And uh, we had a couple of people who either didn't work out or resigned around the same time. And I sort of sat down with the management team and really looked at looked at the future of that business and said, you know, do we really want to 
do we want to go through a big more hiring and training sp- spree? Do we want to, you know, we're, we're going to have to sort of get back on the tools basically to soak up the clients that are now without an account manager. And then we've got to sort of get account managers in, train them, you know, hand over the clients back to them. And that would have been like a at least a 12-month process. Mm. And I wasn't that, I basically wasn't that excited about that process. So we ended up making a decision to go back to a small, lean and distributed team and worked out that the cost structure would be fairly, you know, attractive, I suppose, or mm. wouldn't have some of those big fixed costs of, of the current model. So that's what we sort of did. I had to have some hard conversations with our team and some, you know, there's really good team members among them and sort of say, look, we're, we're going to, we're basically going to reimagine the agency re- and, and, and call it downsizing. And so thanks, you know, thanks for your service, but we, but this is what we're going to do. And, you know, one Friday afternoon, I said I had to lay off, you know, eight people. Yeah, tough day. In one go, yeah, that was a, that was a tough day. I mean, I'm sure it was tough for them too, but uh, right. yeah, that was a hard day for me too. <laughs> and um, yeah, so we moved up to the top floor in the building and then had to, over a period of time, we searched for a commercial tenant to then op- occupy the bottom floor. And that's pretty hard to do <laughs> if you've ever searched for commercial <laughs> tenants. Yeah. They tend to be long-term leases but hard to get and the market was pretty soft so we had a really good uh, real estate agent who assisted with that process and we found a good a very good and suitable tenant who's, who's now been in in there for about a year and they're actually a uh, a doggy daycare business <laughs> so now we're sort of a marketing agency on top and doggy daycare below that must be very noisy um, noisy downstairs huh <laughs> well they put in all this awesome soundproofing so that was that was that was a blessing the good thing about it i guess is that the doggy daycare is not going to get digitally disrupted you know, people are still going to want their dogs, and they're still going to, you know, they're they're still going to want the hair clipped and stuff. So I think we're safe from a tenant point of view there. But all of this, I suppose, coming back to the the cash flow thing. So I had the cost of downsizing was quite large. You know, you got to pay out people their annual leave. You've probably got a lot of legacy costs that are suitable for a twelve or fifteen person business, and now you're a three person business, right? So you got to sort of trim away at those costs. There's contracts not to, you know, contracts to see through, or whatever. So we sort of had. A lot of cash going out that way. We had the lower floor of the building temporarily unoccupied, and I was putting money into these new ventures, and they weren't necessarily producing coin at the same rate. Around about the same time, we bought that the acreage out at you know 13 acres out at out of Brookfield. So there was a lot of big transactions and things going on, and and a lot of outflows into the income side of things. So that was it. Took a while to sort of put the brakes on that and basically go right. How do we turn this? How do we turn the corner here and get these things moving again? And now probably I'm just at the position, just at the place where things are, you know, heading on the up and up again. But yeah, it's taken two, three years. So is a lot of your personal time now spent managing campaigns for these other three companies? Not so much. I've got, again, I guess being able to draw on those agency resources. I've got uh, specialists generally in each area who are providing like the a lot of the work product for those companies. So, you know, Facebook advertising, AdWords, SEO, etc. I'm kind of more of a overused term, but a growth hacker um, <laughs> who's trying to work out what the leverage points are and the next steps are and then sort of make them happen. So I sort of dabble in some of the tools a little bit, but essentially the heavy lifting is being done by other parties. And there's been some good economies of scale around sort of tech stacks and things like that. We've sort of got a standardized tech stack so we can go all right, for businesses A, B, and C, we need, you know, we need this sort of thing put in place, and we use the same, same stack, same tech, same whatever, and that makes makes it a lot more efficient once you work out what you're doing. 
Okay. So I guess we've, I feel like we've come full circle here. Well, and we've, we've summarized everything. So thanks for clearing up all the, the steps. I, I, I like the chronology. I think it's actually really interesting to sort of see the evolution of an agency in particular. I think anyone who's an agency owner or getting into that business will, will take a lot from the full cycle of, you know, whatever it is there, 20 years of uh, agency life or maybe 15, 16 years to sort of see what what worked and then the decision you make to downsize the autonomy and control you gain by becoming partners in other people's companies and using your agency resources to grow those businesses i think that in particular will be a uh, a real eye opener for you know some people thinking that this could be a way to create not just multiple streams of income but some stability and use their skill set like you said in a more controlled i get to decide where to drive the ship and not We'll let my client make that choice. So that's interesting. Yeah. As we wrap it up here, you know, if you think back now, since the 15, 16, 17 years since we did your first interview, you're obviously in a much different life situation. You've gone through a heck of a long journey with one company and then, you know, had some fun now growing some, some new businesses. If there was one or two really big takeaways, you know, having a chance to go back and do it again, or maybe to put it into the point of view of the listener, who doesn't want to repeat your mistakes, so to speak, uh, what would you do differently? That's a really interesting question. I think I took a long time to make key decisions in the agency. So I would go, you know, for example, what we should do is we should start charging for strategy. We could do a, you know, we could do a, a, a day of strategy and we can charge some money for it. Like I probably had that idea three years before I did it. So there was a lot of time between thinking of the idea and, and actioning it. There was always some reason why it couldn't be done or whatever or wasn't the right time. So putting things into action faster, I guess treating, treating um, having a mindset more of experimentation and going, hey, let's treat this as an experiment. Let's, let's try to – let's pitch this to three clients and see, and see what comes of it. And um, if they say yes, then we'll, we'll backfill and we'll work out how to deliver or whatever. So I was probably quite – quite plotting in my own development. It was just a, gent a bit of a big snowball gathering. And maybe that's the style that I have tended to do things, but that's probably one lesson to iterate faster. I think I've, now that I've sort of got four companies, it's probably, you know, probably one too many, to be honest. <laughs> um, <laughs> for my current, if, with everything else going on in my life. So each company has a, I mean, I don't know, you hear Richard Branson, people like that, they might have 200 companies, right? But in my case, each company has a you know there's a there's a sort of a layer of 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 administration of of setup of uh, decisions that need to make and all of those sort of cut into your work week so that you've got less and less value being delivered through your core competency. So if that makes sense, so if each company just sort of takes five hours a week just to keep the lights on and stay on top of admin admin and general matters like that, then you've only really got you know 20, 20, 30 hours to add value rather than 40, 50. So that's, uh, yeah, poss possibly expanded into too many companies too quickly without sort of getting each one onto its feet. Uh, I don't think it's a major issue, but yeah, I might have sort of delayed, you know, perhaps delayed investing in <laughs> one more and, and, and got them up to a bigger stage first. That's probably one takeaway. You do realize your two takeaways were one was like, I was too slow and now you're saying you're too quick. <laughs> That's true. That is true. Okay. Just disregard everything I've just said then. Um, yeah. Um, Which is fairly <laughs> a fair call because you had one company for 12 years and then you had three and three, right? So yeah, you made yeah. up for it in, in the speed. 
Yeah, and I think the current evolution of marketing results as well, I think, has been has been positive. So uh, Ben's now the it's technically like a partner. Uh, well, it's not it's not a technical partnership. It's a functionally it's like a partnership where Ben is responsible for delivering, and he receives a percentage of revenue from the clients that he brings in and looks after. And it's a fairly it's a fairly generous and uh, lucrative sort of split for for him. But also because now I'm not. You know, I don't have to worry about anything, and you know, it works for me as well. Because you know, before you'd start out with some good revenue, but by the time you've you know got all the managers and you've paid for everything, it chips away at that in terms of profit. So mm. that model's working well. And because you know, yeah, he's obviously super motivated and autonomous around getting clients in, doing good work, satisfying, retaining, all of that. That's working pretty well, actually. Mm. Yeah, it's it's actually uh, I've, I've noticed this also having been in the space now for so long and seeing entrepreneurs over time. For example, Evan Pagan with his, he's got a Ben as well, so to speak, with uh, James Milnick or James Mel, who runs his coaching, business coaching business. And I'm not, I obviously don't know the financial arrangements, but I know it is a form of, you know, co-ownership partnership that James had to kind of buy into. And, you know, it's not a, it's a nice strategy for someone who's been building a business for a long time, doesn't want to sell the whole thing, but wants to step away from it quite significantly. And, you know, you can bring on a, a skilled operations executive kind of person and, and, uh, you know, not exit, but get a good result. So it's another, yeah. another, you know, kind of takeaway, I think, for everyone listening in. So I, w- I would say as well that the models worked very well. And I would be as a growth path, perhaps for market results, it's, it's around finding another Ben or, 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 you know, multiple people that are interested in the same model it's probably pretty damn hard to find them because they've got to be pretty pretty awesome but as a a growth path and it does give some light at the end of the tunnel it's not just a straight downsize and sort of you know fade off into the distance there's there's some growth potential there as well which is quite exciting right right don't have to close down the company completely yeah 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 okay so where do we find you now will or where do you want to send people you're, you're not uh you're not much of a personal brand anymore i guess are you because you used to kind of be the face of marketing results but i'm assuming that's not the case anymore yeah, that's right. Well, I guess I'm, you know, I think my photo, my profile photo is still on the marketing results website. I think <laughs> marketing, marketingresults.com.au. There is a, if, if listeners, if people are interested, then I've got that growth strategy map that I mentioned. And that's my, that's kind of my methodology for growing a, a company. And it's on, it's on a, an A3 sheet. So I could, I could give you a copy or, or link to a copy or something. Yeah, yeah. If your peeps are interested in that. All right, we'll put that with the show notes, either the link to it or, or a direct download for the for the file. That'd be awesome. Yeah, cool. Okay, any last words, Will? Oh, I don't think so. It's been good to come full circle. Uh, there's <laughs> been a lot of water under the bridge, isn't it? And um, yeah, hopefully, yeah. hopefully, I'll be invited back in another 15 years to um, talk about your grandkids. To, to, to talk about how my <laughs> my bionic, you know, my bionic brain's going. Yeah, yeah, or, or your chicken farm, <laughs> a paka farm, or whatever you've got. Yeah, going. yeah, one of the two. Yeah. <laughs> Awesome. Well, I, I love the multi-entrepreneur path you take, and I think it's a lot of fun to say you've got a, a shed business and a you know real estate business and, and a marketing agency and, and a software company that's bleeding and dry. But you know, it's all part of the journey. So yeah. um, that's awesome. Yeah. Good luck, and yeah, hopefully we'll we'll get in touch again uh, in, in some future time, and maybe it might be another fifteen years. But hey, it's a good amount of time to do a lot of stuff. So keep up the good work. Thanks, man. Good to chat. Thanks for listening to Yarrow's podcast. For more episodes, visit yarrow.blog and subscribe on iTunes or Google.